And welcome to the Beervana Podcast. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. We're in uh, studio number two today. We are? Which uh, I, yeah, go ahead. Which I point out because the dog of the pod is part of studio number two, and he's already snoring away. So if you hear some rumbling in the background, that's what it is. I hope we can hear him. He's always so nice to hear. <laughs> They'll put our listeners to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Slumbering away. It's a dog's life. <laughs> I think we probably do a good enough job of that ourselves. Uh, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. It is. Happy New Year. Uh, Happy New Year to you, too. That's right. It's 2017. That's going to factor in today's pod. That's Um, true. That's a little tease for the future. Uh, It's cold but clear, just like Wisconsin. Uh, Okay, so with me, as always, is Jeff Allworth. He's the author of The Beer Bible from Workman Publishing, uh, Cider Made Simple from Chronicle Books. Uh, Hopefully the holiday sale season went well for you. Yeah, I think so. Awesome. You can find him blogging at Beervana. You can find him blogging at All About Beer. And you can find him writing uh, for All About Beer magazine. And with me is Patrick Emerson, professor of economics at Oregon State University, as well as a research fellow for the Center for Applied Microeconomic Research at the Sao Paulo School of Economics. See micro for those scoring at home. Uh, you can also find him blogging at Beeronomics and tweeting at Beeronomics. Indeed. Uh, but before we continue, we'd like to let you know that uh, the Beer Bonnet podcast is brought to you by Guinness. With the help of nitrogen, the thick, creamy head that, the use, that you're used to seeing from Guinness can now be found on the new Guinness Nitro IPA. Shouldn't that be in the new Nitro Guinness IPA? Hey, we just read the script. Okay, all right. Smarter people than us put this together. <laughs> and by All About Beer magazine. Since 1979, award-winning beer and brewery news, reviews, and insight in print and online. Subscribe today, allaboutbeer.com slash subscribe. And by the way, I finally had Guinness Nitro IPA. Ah. Uh, I went out and got myself uh, a six-pack of Guinness Nitro IPA available in cans, which, right. of course, with a little widget. Yep. Uh, so it nitrogenates the, uh, the IPA. And um, uh, though skeptical listeners might think I'm in the pocket, I quite enjoyed it. Yeah, I thought you would. It's your. It's right up your alley. Yeah, and in fact, uh, I'll give it a big plug because it's very hard these days with the ascendancy of American IPAs to find anything that's in the English tradition. It's Irish, but well, let's call it the English tradition, which is sort of a malt forward. It's Americanized. It's a little uh, hoppier than a traditional English one and with some American hops. I think it's got Cascades, among others, in there. Um, but uh, if you're looking for an English-style IPA, I actually really enjoyed it. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, nitrogen s- creates a subdued aroma, and so it's not the kind of presentation you'd find uh, for an American IPA. Yeah, and in fact, I was going to say, sort of the nitrogen for me in the IPA is sort of, I could take it or leave it. In fact, I was thinking as I was drinking it, it would be fun to to taste a, the same beer uh, on cask, on CO2, and on nitrogen. Um, and I thought there's one place that could do that, which is the Deschutes pub in town, and maybe others, but they have all three. Uh, rolling. So if you get if you get them to put the same beer on all three, you could actually do a little a little flight there. You probably do it at uh, St. James Gate too, but that's another matter. <laughs> yeah, uh, um, the, you know the nitrogen is lovely to look at, uh, and it's interesting that you mentioned the aroma. I wasn't really thinking about the aroma, but the one thing I would say about it is it's uh, it's actually sort of surprisingly bitter. Um, it leaves a, a fairly significant bitter aftertaste, um, which is different than most English IPAs. And it's a little surprising. I think now maybe I know why, because you don't get it in the nose as much. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's almost impossible to find a real English style IPA. And, and, and this one's a good one. It reminds me a little bit of Twisted Thistle, the Belhaven beer, which I like a lot, but it's hard to find. So, um, so there you are. All right. Way to go, Guinness. Uh, okay. 
So um, today we're going to do a little house cleaning podcast. I don't want to house cleaning. You wrote this. I didn't write that. Uh, we're going to do something brilliant today. <laughs> we're going to. Uh, a few years ago, I wrote a I wrote an article uh, in the um, Beeronomics blog. Which there goes my script, yeah. my genius prose. <laughs> All right, carry okay. on. All right, I'm going back to your script. <laughs> we're going to start out with an interesting Beeronomics segment. We've been calling "What's John Harris Worth." Uh, and for those of you who don't know John Harris, we've mentioned him on the pod before, but he's sort of a legendary local brewer. Uh, we'll talk more about him. It's a bit speculative, but we're going to try to assess the, assess the value of a legendary brewer uh, to a brewery. Yeah. Doing a little, doing a little, <laughs> little editing on the fly there. All right, I don't edit. That's how that rolls. That's how I roll. A little typo there. Readers of my blog are well aware of that. Yes, but the, our listeners are not because I'm brilliant. <laughs> I can think on my feet. Uh, we're also going to use the new year as an opportunity to recap 2016 and then look forward uh, to what we expect in 2017. Uh, should be fun. And in fact, um, I, uh, brilliantly, we're going to dovetail those two because I'm going to talk about how the market's changing uh, uh, with respect to our little question about how much is a superstar brew worth. Uh, anyway, so um, uh, Jeff found nothing in the news file. So dee, 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 dee. It's the year end. It's not my fault. Yeah. It wasn't my fa- it was not my failure to find it. It was the failure of the news to happen at all. Yeah. And we've been so comprehensive that there's really almost no stone left unturned. <laughs> That's right. We are uh, certainly your first source for news. Yeah. And only. <laughs> if there's if anything happens in beer, we're there to cover it. <laughs> <laughs> we've got our uh, our foreign correspondents on 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 the case. Okay, so today's podcast is sort of half uh, half beeronomics and half uh, sort of year-end review, look ahead to 2017. Yep. And uh, let's just jump right in since there's no new segment to break it up. It's kind of dizzying almost. It's true. Uh, and we're going to go, you're going to talk about what John Harris is worth. I probably should have done the lead-in since you're going to do this next piece. But let me just uh, ask you to rewind before I made you read the script. You're mm-hmm. about to say something about your blog so what were you going to say about that oh i was just uh setting up the topic which is years ago i i did this blog post um which uh was trying to um sort of be provocative is more economics than uh business but it was talking about what is a brewer who is better than most and is able to create sort of iconic beers what's it worth to a brewery uh and that was also in relation to the fact that brewers are typically not super well paid Right, it's not you're typically not driving Ferrari if you're a brewmaster somewhere. Right, unless it's maybe Bud. <laughs> we have this idea in brewing that uh, the brewer we have this kind of a cult of personality. It's a little different than other businesses that way. In other businesses, you'd look at the CEO as the driver of uh-huh. the, the corporation, but here we always look to the brewer. So. Yeah, and I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, some of the economics uh, uh, concepts that might relate, and so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to have a little discussion, but before we do that, we should probably. John Harris mention who he is. Yeah, we should probably sort of talk about John Harris and why particularly we're talking about John Harris. So why don't you do that bit? All right, we can do that. We when we are using John Harris because we're familiar with him here in in Portland. There are a number of these brewers around the country. We could talk about yep. them. I think the principle would apply. But we're going to talk about John Harris today, and he is um, one of the most legendary brewers here in Oregon. He was uh, one of the first brewers hired by the McMinimans uh, brew pub chain. Um, before it was really much of a chain at all. Mm-hmm. When it started out, they started out almost immediately after the law in Oregon was changed, allowed. And uh, they, yeah, they helped pass that law so they could start right. brewing. 
Uh, and they were really crude when they started. They were actually brewing with extract. Which yeah. Was a shocking <laughs> um, discovery for those uh, who know how to brew beer now. And John uh, was one of the first people they hired. And I actually, uh, at his 30th anniversary, um, he, he described being hired by the McMinimans, and I videotaped that. We'll try to put a link about to that video where uh, he describes being hired by the McMinimans. It was pretty funny. He was a young kid, and he got the call, and they said, do you want to be a brewer? And he said, uh, sure. <laughs> That's at the Beervana blog? Yes, I posted that at the beer bottle. It's a YouTube, so we can do a direct link there too. I'm yeah, sure. anyway. but if but if you can't find a direct link, just to go to the beer bottle blog and search under Harris. That's right, um, and we'll try to put a link up. He wasn't there very long before a young uh, guy named Gary Fish gave him a call and said he wanted to start a brewery in Bend, Oregon, um, which he would call uh, Deschutes Brewing, mm-hmm. um, and it was just a little brew pub, and it was. Just like every other little brew pub, when nobody knew at the time that it was going to become one of the most important breweries in America. Um, so John took the job. He went to Bend, and he brewed a number of the beers that they are still brewing, uh, including Mirror Pond, uh, Blackbeet Porter, Jubilee, um, a couple that are no longer with us. I think um, he might have done Obsidian. Anyway, he did a lot of those early beers. Yeah, and in fact, uh, for our beer today, we're actually going to be tasting some of John Harris's beer through the years. Uh, and to get the Deschutes beers, I went and I actually got one of these like mix pack, 12 packs, uh, and a couple of the newer beers are in there. And then of course, what I would call there two the two beers that basically made the company and yep. continue to sustain the company, which are Mirror Pond, uh, and Blackview Porter. Um, so they're still being made. Right. And so that's, like. and, and so I jump in here just to say that that's, that sort of was the genesis of what, how much, uh, what is John Harris worth? Because he's created, he created two of the beers or arguably the beers that uh, that made the company what it is or put the company on the path to to where it is now. And I kind of skipped over another beer that we have here in front of us is one of the Miniman's and it's a, it was, I think it was originally called a strong ale. I'm not sure what they call it now. It's called Hammerhead. Anybody who's ever been to a Miniman's will have seen Hammerhead. Uh, That was one that John Harris created. So we've got, uh, we're going to taste a John Harris, uh, retrospective here we got a hammerhead we got a mirror pond um and we've got his current yeah. beer, but but we'll, I, ju- I jumped in right before he moved from deschutes to full sale so. yeah so then he was at full sale he was actually at full sale for 20 years from 1992 uh until uh, 2012 and then he started his own brewery and when he was at in full sale full sale for those who don't know is in a, a town about an hour down the columbia river gorge called hood river mm-hmm. and he anchored the test <clears throat> excuse me the test brewery here in portland right uh, and produced the Brewmasters Reserve series and was a, a, an important part of uh, product development while he was at Full Sail. Um, but he always wanted to own his own brewery because he kept making all these beers that made yep. other people tons and tons of money. Yep. And so uh, after he left Full Sail, he founded his own brewery called Ecliptic. We've tasted some of his Ecliptic beers here on the pod, and we've got another one. Um, what do you have as IPA here? Yeah, the Orbiter IPA. Orbiter IPA. So we'll try that one too. So that's his history. Um, he's now on his fourth brewery uh, and has made a number of the classics that are still available in the state of Oregon that yeah. he brewed, you know, decades, as many as decades ago. Right. So that's John Harris. Yeah. So the question at hand is how much is, uh, there are a lot of good brewers around, uh, but, uh, and I guess there's a couple of questions we can ask. The first is how scarce is talent in brewing? Um uh, and um, the second question is, how much is a truly exceptional brewer or a brewer who can create these iconic beers worth uh, to a business? 
Um, and so that's 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 the jumping off point. Can I ask a question? You Can may. I add one of the, a third bullet point to your yeah. question? How important? I would say the third one is how important is good beer to a brewery? Uh, that's what I often wonder. Like, how much do you have to have distinctive? Yeah, and actually, that's one of the things that uh, I want to talk about at the end, which is how much is the industry changing and changing all this calculus. Yeah, okay. So, but let's start with the start. So the, the first concept I wanted to talk about when talking about these sort of superstar brewers, uh, let's just assume uh, superstar brewers for the moment, um, is a concept in economics we call winner-take-all markets. Mm. Uh, and winner-take-all markets, I think the term was coined by uh, Bob Frank at Cornell, um, who was one of my uh, professors there. Uh, but what a winner-take-all market is, is a market that has outsized returns for the very top. Uh, right. So the first thing to think about, I suppose, is just a lottery. So that's sort of a winner-take-all contest where uh, everyone buys a ticket, and but only one person has the winning ticket and gets all of the winnings. Amazon.com is, a winner, is one of the winners in the online uh, retail space, maybe. Yeah, you could potentially think of that. The way I like to talk about it to students is uh, sports. So uh, there are... You know, probably hundreds of thousands of really talented basketball players in the United States, for example. Um, I'm not sure about hundreds of thousands, but I take your point. Uh, tens of thousands of basketball. <laughs> there are a lot. And, right. and the point is, there are a lot more than those that play in the NBA. Right. Um, but if your talent is just marginally more or better than uh, others, you can suddenly find yourself making uh, tens of millions of dollars playing basketball versus more or less nothing playing right. basketball. And so uh, that's a market, arguably, in which uh, there are sort of outsized returns for the very, very, very top performers. Interesting. And almost no returns for the performers that aren't right at the very top. Right. And the difference between LeBron James and a guy who ends up playing in uh, Italy is pretty small compared to the the difference between like a pretty good college basketball player and that guy playing in Italy. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the crop of 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 really top college basketball players that come out each year, uh, there's probably four or five of them that will become superstars in the NBA, and there's some of them who are almost as good or uh, close to being as good that end up not playing professionally at all. So right. um, the difference is 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 small in terms of their talent. The difference is huge in terms of the rewards they get. Fascinating. Um, so my my first the first part of this uh, exploration was is beer like a winner take all market? Um, and one of the type uh, the markets that we think of a winner take all markets is uh, uh, pop music or or music in general. Uh, and the reason that it's a winner take all market is has a lot to do with the fact that um, you can reproduce what it is that you do. So if you're um, I think at the time I was a Lady Gaga. <laughs> reference I use for John Harris. Uh, I don't know what the current, uh, uh, maybe Taylor Swift or something like that. Adele. <laughs> Adele. Yeah. So, uh, so Adele is a, is a top performer, maybe, maybe slightly better than, than, uh, uh other performers of her ilk. Um, and so not only is she better and that she, uh, and so people would probably pay more and fill up bigger size auditoriums to see her, mm-hmm. but she can also record, uh, her voice and put it on, uh, well, in this case, put it in the uh, on the web, um, probably for the most part. Although I think she actually sells albums. One of the mysteries of Adele, which is that her albums still sell a lot. Anyway, the point is that she can record her music and resell it, resell it, resell it, resell it. So basically, reproduce it at infinitum, and then the rewards become humongous. Right. Right. Because now all of a sudden, that tiny little bit in talent is not just translated into a bigger receipt at the box office, but it's in 
it's these uh, millions and millions of dollars of album sales or, or song sales. Uh, so that was what I was thinking in terms of beer. So beer is sort of similar. There, Deschutes is still making Mirror Pond and still making Black Butte Porter, basically recipes that John Harris created using methods that he, <coughs> excuse me, uh, determined. Uh, and so his legacy uh, continues at Deschutes, and he's still, they're still selling the beer and probably making millions of dollars, at least in revenue, doing it. Um, so, yeah, so, so, it's, so your answer is yes, it is a winner-take-all market. Uh, potentially. Uh, the third part of that is, is brewing talent really scarce? Does John Harris have something uh, particular uh, or a little bit of extra talent that others don't? And that's actually where I'm going to kick it to you, uh, beer guru. Uh, <laughs> is it just that John Harris was in the right place at the right time, was able to brew decent beers, uh, and those beers gain traction? Or does he have something special? Well, that's an interesting thing, because to use your music analogy, mm -hmm. very often the best-selling artists are not the best artists. They're not the most talented. Um, a lot of times, the people who get the most critical acclaim don't necessarily make sell the most albums so <clears throat> although as as an economist best i would say maybe uh, you could define best uh subjectively um which is maybe if your critical take that adele isn't quite as good as i don't know but uh but objectively the market is one way in which you could determine best best in that more more people wish to listen to adele than the next best performer well I don't know. We've wandered into a whole thing about the subjectivity of art versus, um, in, the, in the case of a commercial product, best means the ability to Sell. Op optimize, a, uh, op optimize a recipe that can be produced at volume uh, and is reproducible and, you know, yeah. you, you can so, so let's define, but So let's define best that way for, this, for the purposes of this, right? Because that's what we're talking about. Like, how able are you able, how able are you to make a beer that is going to become really popular? Uh, I don't think anybody is. I mean, I, I'm, every brewery is trying to do that, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> I don't think it depends on the brewer. I mean, it's just there's a certain quality of dumb luck. I mean, if we get into it, I, I'm prepared to talk about the aesthetics of beer. And in that case, I think it matters a lot. I think that there is a huge, vast difference in, in levels of quality. But in terms of creating the next um, Mirror Pond, for example, mm -hmm. uh Everybody is trying to do it. They all have competent brewers. Some of them do. Some of them don't. I mean, there's just not that much space for the next beer like that. And actually, it seems like, unlike uh, music, the it does seem like the market is becoming more diffuse. So you don't have the same kind of rainmakers that you used to have. You don't have one brand that, that does so well. You don't have the Adele in the beer market. Yeah, and, that, and, and, and I'll get that back to that in a minute because I think that's important. Uh, but I want to talk about this for a second, which is, um, well, first off, I would say the market... Backs, backs you up uh, because you would expect top brewers to have their uh, salaries bid up through intense competition for their services. Um, I suppose it's a little bit confounded by the fact that a lot of times brewers start their own breweries. So in, in John's case, he started Ecliptic and he can start making outsized returns as an owner for his brewing talents if they continue to do really well on the market. Um, and then the other part that I would say is that a successful brewery is both good beer and also a lot of other things as we've talked about good marketing good sales good um good uh, pr and customer relations and all that you know there is actually the more i think about this i, I would add a caveat or a, 
a circumstance in which I think the brewer is really important. Um, the Oregon market is a good example mm-hmm. where you have uh, the you have some big uh, big brands making selling a lot of beer. Yeah, but um, you have a fairly long tail, and within that long tail, uh, you have a lot of breweries competing to sell uh, between three and. 15,000 barrels in that market between three and 15,000 barrels. If you were wanting to compete in that market, mm-hmm. uh, having a good brewer is critically important. Having a, somebody like uh, Josh Freem or Ben Edmonds, um, it is a huge advantage. I mean, those breweries make great beer. They establish the brand. People start to trust the beer, no matter what the brand is. Like it could be a Goza or it could be an IPA mm-hmm. or a Pilsner and they see the name on it. And I've seen this happen in pubs and, <laughs> uh, living rooms across the the city mm-hmm. uh they see the name of a of a company that they they know the brewer at and they'll they'll drink that beer um so i think i think there is a circumstance where that happens but um and i don't know how you i, I don't know how that translates to what you're saying it like maybe in a national i don't know but it's interesting yeah so i i guess that's one one aspect of it is that it might not just be a beer but if you are uh a talented brewer who can ensure quality across a lot of beers and you can really build the brand's reputation. And as I've talked about in the past, since beer is an experience good, you don't know how much you're going to like it until you try it. You have right. to buy beer based on something. Right. And if it's not past experience, if you don't know it already, then it's usually other clues that you get. Uh, and the biggest one might be that it's a trusted brewer or some brewer that you've heard about, trusted brewery, some brewery where you've heard about either one. Um, so, uh, the difference in a really talented brewer who can do that and a, a talented brewer but who's maybe not quite as talented might be just in the sort of uh, the way that the business evolves, um, gains sort of market share, gains consumer trust, consumer knowledge of, of I'm thinking, um, you mentioned Ben Edmonds, something thinking of Breakside now, who I think has done an, an excellent job in a very few years. Uh, becoming known across a whole range of beers as, uh, uh, for very high quality. Yeah. Yeah, there, there are breweries that are definitely doing really well. And, um, it, but, you know, the, it, there's a scale issue. At a certain point, those really big breweries, uh, it seems to have more to do with um, business decisions. Uh, the, you know, the way you market the beer, the way mm-hmm. you have distribution deals, like yeah. all, all these kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, your price point, your efficiency, all that stuff that you, you talk about all the time. Right. So, and, um, so I guess another uh, related question is how much is the success of Mirror Pond and Black Butte due to John's creation and how much is due to Gary Fish's very uh, talented uh, running and growing of the business um, and all the other people involved in PR and marketing and art and everything else. Yeah, in my recent um, year-end roundup at Beervana, I talked a little bit about how beer has the beer industry has changed from the late '80s, early '90s when when I started drinking good beer to now, mm-hmm. and the quality differential is massive. Right. Yeah, you, you remember you're, you're you're my age, so you remember the ni- the late '80s and Absolutely, early '90s. Absolutely, yeah. Um, good beer was not actually there. Were a lot of craft brewers, and the ones who made good beer were are a little bit rare. And mm-hmm. I think in that market. Um, Blackbeat Porter and Mirapon were, you know, head and shoulders above the competition. And I know that I I remember I remember distinctly the first time I ever had a Mirapon. Uh, it was in a bottle. I'd never had that beer before, and it was the first um, uh, kind of American sunny 
cascade uh, beer that I'd had aside from Sierra Nevada that really knocked my socks off. Right. And it was, uh, it, and, it, and it was different than Sierra Nevada. It was a little mellower. It was a little fruitier. It was mm-hmm. a little softer. It was sunnier. It, um, it was just, it was different, but it was super expressive and lovely. And I thought I will drink this beer the rest of my life, every day, the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> and there were a lot of pale ales at the time. Right. It was the style that everyone was trying to make. And, and for whatever reason, it wasn't, showing to be particularly easy to produce a good one so that's right uh so i agree and i and and so let's talk about the evolution of the market as well because another part back then you might really have been able to gain a lot of market share and a lot of sales because you've created a quality product and have a quality recipe these days novelty i think is as much a part and while and while i'm talking i see that you're gonna we're gonna start way back when i i yeah we are gonna start way back when because we got a hammerhead here and i haven't had a hammerhead in a little while but um mcminimins was an early entrant that made some of the mediocre beer mm-hmm. and they never really strove to make good beer they don't pay their brewers well so they always have novice brewers uh, coming in and they've never been committed to producing, you know, really exceptional, in, distinctive, interesting beer. Yeah. Um, so we're going to try a beer that tastes like 1985 here. And yeah. So that, so that's when it, that's when it, that the law was in 85 or 86, 85. I don't know. 85 or 86. I think, I think the law changed in 86. Uh, but the story with this beer, because, uh, a few years ago I blogged about, they did a PR, a press release with the, uh, the 25th anniversary of Hammerhead. Uh, and it started as they started out as extract brewers, which is liquid malt extracts. You don't actually get the grain, the malted grain, and then steep it and mash in like uh, like all the breweries do now, basically. Um, and John Harris was hired, and he said, "Okay, let's 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 actually use grain now and start doing it." And he talked about how he he kicked up the hops, right? Decided to hop it up a bit. And I think it's it's it is instructive, even though I think we're not going to be thrilled by this beer mm-hmm. in the way that we're thrilled by other beers, modern beers. The McMinimins is a market, its own market. They have all these different pubs making all these different, all these different breweries making all these different yeah. beers, and the ones that are really successful eventually filter the top and become standards. That's how all the standards have happened. And mm-hmm. you know, Hammerhead is is one of those ones. So he, within that ecosystem, John created one of the best beers there. So yeah. he's he just continues to wherever he goes, he creates. Really nice beers. Yeah. So as I was saying, as you were opening the beer, is that uh, the market may have changed quite a bit from the early calculus where just a talented brewer who kind of knew what he was doing could create a nice, clean, uh, well-balanced beer was worth a lot. Nowadays, uh, even if you come out with a great beer, um, novelty, I think, is becoming more and more important. There's so much churn in the market. There's so many different beers out there that people are always looking for something new, something different. And so it's not just so much, not so much that you can just come up with one beer, but you're always, I guess, talent might be more now about how you can kind of um, follow and create trends and be innovative uh, and come up with new tastes and flavors. And, all right, I'm going to try this while I'm talking because I'm running out of steam here. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's just talk about oh. this beer because it tells you what, what it tasted like in 1980. Oh. I don't know. Yeah. 89 or it something. It smells like the late 80s. It does, yeah. It really does. It, it smells like uh, our first home brews too. It does. Yeah, it's, it's very homebrewy. if anybody mm-hmm. uh, makes – and I shouldn't say all homebrewers, but um, first home – like novice homebrewy is what it tastes. So it pours out uh, – it looks a little bit English in its coloration. Mm-hmm. It's fairly dark. Um, and it's quite murky. It's not bright at all, mm-hmm. uh, which is not English necessarily. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to slight any anybody there. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the head is a little bit off-white, ecru, let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, the aroma is kind of um, caramely. Just it's they got that a little wordy maybe. It's a little wordy. It's um, it's definitely malty. It's probably got a lot of crystal in there. Yeah. So a lot of unfermented sugars. Yep. Um, it's got a fair yeah. amount of hops, but they're all first edition, so it's bitter, sort of a murky bitterness. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's fantastic as a beautiful, like, museum piece. Yeah, it's true. great actually. I <laughs> listen, children. This is what I, your grandfather's this was, beer. Used this was to taste this like. was craft beer in 1989 <laughs> or whatever. This this was it. Yeah. Wow. And compared to Bud Light, it was pretty good. But and, and honestly, I probably haven't had it. I've had other McMinimins beers mm-hmm. quite m- quite recently, in fact. But I haven't had Hammerhead probably since 1989. So yeah, it's uh, been a while. It wasn't one of my go-to um, beers. So mm. yeah, so you can really sort of uh, maybe and maybe we will today really go through kind of s- some of the generations of of craft beer because we've got this one, which definitely tastes kind of homebrewy late 90s yeah i was just thinking that probably that was kind of probably exactly what we were striving for in our first homebrew which right wasn't nearly that (laughs) yeah because the truth is we probably thought this was really hoppy Mm -hmm. uh it does not taste that way now because we have so much more uh, understanding of how to brew with hops to make get more out of them Mm -hmm. but it is pretty bitter it's just got so much uh crystal malt that it's (laughs) <laughs> you kind of don't notice it, but it's yeah. it's pretty hoppy. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I'm getting the bitter the bitter on the tongue too. Mm. But before we continue, we'd like to remind you that Birvana is brought to you by Guinness. Nitro IPA is an English style IPA that's brewed using five different types of hops, yet remains balanced and smooth, and without the overwhelming bite you might expect from an American IPA, thanks to the nitrogen. And by All About Beer magazine, since 1979. Award-winning beer and brewery news, reviews, and insight. In print and online. Subscribe today. Allaboutbeer.com slash subscribe. So we're kind of coming, we're, we're at least uh, potentially coming to a conclusion that um, not that brewers are interchangeable, but that the value of an individual brewer who can create a few great beers is probably being diluted in this market, the mo- more modern market, and maybe always was that way as well. Yeah, it seems like um, a brewer is is uh, is a critical piece. I would say, people ask me that. I've been asked this question in mm-hmm. in other versions, like how how important is the beer? Mm-hmm. Um, because periodically you have a, 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 the equivalent of a gimmick song that sells a million copies, mm-hmm. your father's root beer kind of thing, right? And so you can <laughs> not jump to name names, not to name names. <laughs> so you can jump to the conclusion that a, you know that the quality of the beer is not so important. But mm-hmm. I think that if you're looking to have a brewery that's successful uh, for a half decade or a decade down the road, and you're putting out gimmick beer, mm-hmm. uh, you're really damaging the brand. You make it a big hit, but eventually it, it, it works against you. And it's a critic. If you want to have a successful, long, long-lasting brewery, it's critical to always put out good beer. And for, for that reason, it's you've got to have a good brewer. I mean, you, you just it's bad if you don't. And when I look at breweries like Deschutes, Deschutes has, has, good, has had good, year, good year, eras and bad eras, mm-hmm. like periods where I was not so excited about their beer. Yeah. Um, uh, there was a period after John left and before Larry Sador got there that I thought was they were kind of languishing. And then Larry Sador got there and they had one of the greatest periods of any brewery, you know, amazing. So it does matter. Yeah. Well, I would also say that the scarcity of talent uh, has lessened and maybe even complete, well, 
Certainly, uh, there was a time in which uh, finding really good, well-trained, experienced brewers was difficult uh, right. because there just weren't that many that had gone through and been working uh, in the industry for a long time. And now, at least in Oregon, that the industry is so big and there are so many people employed as brewers and brew assistants and uh, in other aspects in the breweries, um, I think the talent pool is is much, much deeper than it used to be. Yeah, and, and training is probably a big thing, too. Um, John Harris was not professionally trained, and he was mm-hmm. a, a really talented brewer, and he figured all this stuff out. But a lot of people don't. You know, they, they, make, they make a certain quality of beer, and they just keep repeating that. And yep. there are breweries in the city th- that we could name that mm-hmm. um, kind of have topped out at a, at a low plateau and never really increased. And yeah. professional, professionalization of the industry has been a big asset in, in improving basic quality. Yeah, and you talk to brewers, and usually the... the uh, the thing you hear a lot is that it's uh, almost anyone can brew, you know, a kick-ass beer once. Right. It's the talent to be able to reproduce <laughs> the same beer again and again and again at the same quality, and um, and that's the real, the real trick. Um, so I think that the scarcity of brewers is less, uh, which means that the talent pool is deeper, and perhaps the difference then between the best brewers and the almost best brewers isn't as uh, distinct. Mm-hmm. I also think that the it sounds like you agree with this that the brewer's impact on the brewery um, isn't perhaps as big as it used to be uh, either. Um, that a brewery is, these days probably has a number of good brewers around. That it's a lot to do with marketing and and uh, PR and all the different aspects of brewing. Yeah, I think the bigger a brewer gets, the bigger a brewery gets, the less influence a brewer has over the decisions about what kind of beer to make. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're a smaller brewery, it's all brewer-driven. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know how that happens. Well, yeah, so this is actually one of the interesting things. This is going to get a little bit away from the brewer himself, but this is because we're talking about this, I want to talk about this, which is that um, uh, I've talk at it, talked ad infinitum about economies of scale and what it means to brewing and for a long time that was it right you wanted to become a big brewery uh uh leverage those economies of scale uh into market share because you can undercut people's prices and and for a long time that was kind of seen as the way to go but now all of a sudden we see sierra nevada new belgium uh i don't know about deschutes craft brewers alliance is is one of the widmer uh uh folks um boston brewing is uh, really struggling right now. Mm. Um, we're seeing these these breweries that have grown large now all of a sudden starting to struggle, and I'm wondering whether that represents a sea change in the demand side of the business, where people are looking for new uh, beers more frequently, looking for variety all the time, looking for new experiences every time they go to the market. So they're not looking for that same old beer, whether it be Mirror Pond or Sierra Nevada Pale uh, anymore. Um, and then that, if if so, then the idea that you're going to create this one kick-ass beer in which it's going to grow a company, like, right. like the Mirror Pond or like the, the Sierra Nevada Pale, or I guess in Tichu's case it's just as much Blackbeat Porter, um, or the Boston Lager, uh, isn't, isn't, the, isn't the model anymore. In which case I would argue the brewer is more important because you have to produce a bunch of beers at a level that keeps your name uh, at the top of the consumer's mind. You know, they have to... They have to trust that the brewery is always putting out interesting new yeah. stuff and not chasing trends but leading trends. Yeah, and, and I would, uh, and that's probably even a, a harder thing to do as a brewer is to be able to uh, 
not only brew a wide variety of beers well, but also really be able to brew the next beer well, the next big trend that comes along. It's like, okay, people are looking for this, or I think people are going to like this and start new trends. Um, you really have to be pretty talented then, but it's a lot less of a winner-take-all scenario. So, right, right. so if, if it was just creating the Sierra Nevada Pale that was going to you know, turn you into a billionaire, then that's, you know, <laughs> that's hugely valuable, that ability. Now it's still very valuable. You're going to grow a company on somebody who can keep coming out with consistently good beers, um, but it's unlikely that that company is going to become the next Sierra Nevada. It's probably going to be a reasonably sized regional brewer. But if you're a, but if you're a brewery like uh, Boston Beer or Sierra Nevada, mm-hmm. uh, and you're trying to keep at a million or two million barrels, um, it's an existential crisis if you yeah if you don't have a so so this like is the this at, at that point it seems like the brewers really again the brewers are important. Oh, I guess that's right. I was going to say this is what's really fascinating to me about the industry now is you get this, you know, the model used to be you find your mirror pond or you find your Sierra Nevada pale and then you just ride that horse on into the sunset and that doesn't appear to be true anymore and yet you kind of get locked in. Like if you've grown quickly on on one or two beers... You know, you can't just sort of get rid of those beers necessarily. I think the Widmers, um, probably more than any other local brewer, have really struggled with this uh, because they have their Hefeweizen, which still sells pretty well, but they keep trying to, for a long time, to me, they kept trying to come up with that next big beer that they were going to just sell for the next 10 years, and they haven't really. Well, you know, I think there's a better example. There's two better examples okay. in Portland. There's Bridgeport and there's uh, <laughs> Portland Brewing. Uh-huh. Breweries that were, uh, at one time, um, fairly large, and they were they were bigger than Deschutes at one t- time, and they were competitors with uh, Widmer Brothers yep. as as like the big the big boys. Yep. And now um, Bridgeport is tanking massively. Uh, I think Portland has actually stopped the bleeding and, and now sells a fair amount of beer, even though uh-huh. people don't really think about them too much anymore. But yeah, I mean they have they've fallen far compared comparatively. So right, these things are you know. <laughs> Uh, got to throw uh, Widmer Brothers and uh, and Boston Beer and some of these other ones. It's true they're 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 dropping off a bit, but there there were times. I mean, Pete's Wicked. Good point. People remember yeah. there was a time when Pete's Wicked was the second best selling craft brewery in the United States, and it vanished. Yeah, and by the way, a little anecdote. After I graduated from college, I was for a time a UPS driver, delivery person in Palo Alto, California, and I used to deliver to the Pete's Wicked corporate offices. There you go. And I, at the time, I didn't really understand the business and i couldn't figure out where the heck the brewery was <laughs> uh, for those of you who don't know pete pete's was entirely contract brewed so it was basically just this little office in, in palo alto uh and everything else was you know they they were just the pr and marketing people and sales people so uh anyway so there's my little anecdote yeah well i think and you know does that argue does that argue for uh brewing talent like it was was it a lack of sustained talent at Bridgeport, for example, that led to their uh, decline. Um, is that what they for, sort of forgot was to concentrate on brewing talent? On the- I, I would argue at, at Bridgeport, it's directly related to the. Um, it's not the lack of talent; it's the failure to use the talent. Yeah. Um, Carl Okert was one of, is one of the most talented brewers in, in Oregon. Mm-hmm. We call him a superstar brewer, and yep. he was the longtime brewer. Yeah. Uh, but when Gambrina's company bought Bridgeport, they uh, it's a Texas-based company. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have really been incredibly uh, overweening about what kind of beers Bridgeport produces. Mm. And I think that Gambrinus has never 
even vaguely understood the, the Oregon market. Yeah. And so they have put out a, a you know, a series of, of weird beers and they're, they've just been, they have no, no guidance. They're not brewer led. And, uh, yeah, I think that's a, so it seems to be in contrast to what at least appears to be the AB and Bev attitude, which is to buy these breweries and largely leave them independent, let them, I mean, who knows time will tell, I suppose, whether, yeah, I do think that's right. I think I think ABI right now is making a better decision in saying these guys have some insight into beer and the market and we're going to get out of their way. Mm-hmm. Like they built these companies up through good quality products and the last thing we want to do is interfere with that. Yeah. Um, Bridgeport made the opposite decision. You know, they got in the Carl's way and um, dictated what he would brew and they didn't know what would sell and now they're making, I don't know, they're making something like, you know, 40,000 barrels a year or something and... Uh, Meanwhile, Deschutes and, and uh, uh, Widmer are 10 times as big. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to throw out a question to sort of conclude this little segment, which is to say that uh, if anyone knows sort of anecdotal information about brewers that are kind of reached kind of superstar status and are being uh, lured away with higher salaries or being lured, being convinced to stay by ownership shares, I know this happens. So uh, it would be interesting to know whether... There, there is now a sort of a population of brewers that are kind of riding that escalator up. Like, are there superstar brewers and are they getting outsized returns? Interesting. I would be interested in that too. This is falls outside my scope. I, I'm more on the aesthetic side. <laughs> I can tell you who a good brewer is from that perspective. But all right, well let's let's move on in time. All uh, right, in John Harris's career, we got a so John pond. Harris, uh, Harry Hippie, probably back in the day at at McMinimins. Now he's all clean cut. Now he's all clean cut, working for Gary Fish. Probably, <laughs> he was pro- never clean probably, cut. Probably, Gary probably didn't accept like facial hair. And like that, so. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, I don't, I can't imagine John without lots of hair. If anybody hasn't seen John Harris, he looks sort of like a, um, somebody out of uh, Lord of the Rings. He looks sort of like a medieval. Good uh, call, yeah. I don't know, knight or something. Not knight, but like, I don't know. Anyway, he's uh, long blonde hair almost always wear shorts yeah big beard super nice guy by the way yep. great, great guy one of the smartest guys in craft beer too people yeah. underestimate him based based on his tie-dye and big beard and long hair but mm-hmm. um really smart guy yeah so uh so he shows up in bend uh for this little brew pub called to shoots and creates this beer mirror pond pale ale the shoots is so back in the day uh, English beer was the sort of the, the leading style for America. We were following English brewers. And so a lot of the early breweries really have an English pedigree, and that is the case with uh, Deschutes, which is one of the few breweries, not, I shouldn't say one of the few, but one of the, one of the breweries that started out with uh, English uh, uh, yeast strain and mm-hmm. produces a much more fruity kind of uh, malty beer than is typical for the, like we, we know about uh, Sierra Nevada and their Chico strain, which is super neutral. Right. Um, the shoots never went with that. So, um, it's interesting. I, I always thought of, uh, um, Muir Pond as being really pale, but actually it's nowhere near as pale no, as I recall. It's not that pale. Yeah. It's interesting. It's a gold, it's beautiful golden color. It really looks golden super amber. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, I, I would say it's darker than gold. Yeah, it's, darker than the gold. It's beautifully bright and clear. I'm, uh, I'm holding up the hammerhead next to it, which is very murky <laughs> and darker. Yeah, and it's there's cloudy and hazy in a pretty way, and then there's just murky. And that's just murky. It doesn't look good. Really? I kind of like it. 
Well, Although I do see some things floating around it. Yeah, that just doesn't look good. This is a good looking beer. That is a good looking beer. That's a good looking beer, and it's a good smelling beer, as I recall. It's been a it's been a little while since I've had a Maripond. This is, it seems so English to me now. It's yeah. funny at the time I didn't know anything. Every so often at the Deschutes Brew Pub in Portland, they'll put Maripond on cask. Mm. It tastes like I remember though. <laughs> yeah, you really get the fruity esters on the nose from the from the yeast, huh? You do. It's very. Um, I didn't remember that as much. It's lightly hoppy. I always remember it as being explicitly floral in the aroma, mm-hmm. but uh, that was because it was. Uh, well, I had it in maybe '92 or something right. like that the yeah. first time. Um, but it's actually kind of bready on the nose. Mm-hmm. Um, the malts are are present and, and warming and kind of nice. It, it's very. It smells very English, but it doesn't taste English. Yeah, although it's more malty than I recall. It is it's more funny how, It's funny how memory plays, plays tricks with you. Uh, so yeah, so I would call the Hammerhead a good 80s beer, and this is like a prototypical 90s beer. That one's agreed. This this one still tastes great to me. Oh yeah. Yeah, in fact, I'm really enjoying um, the malt, because as I said, I remember, I remember the hops uh, more than the malt, but it's actually a really nicely balanced beer with some nice uh, fruity esters. Yeah, the fruity esters work really well with the uh, the Cascades. I'm pretty sure it's an all-Cascade hop beer. Mm. And it's very, it always just struck me as very sunshiny. It just, it's light and bright and has a lot of top notes, and it's really... Yeah, it's more complex than uh, Sierra Nevada Pale. Ooh, I wish we had one here to test that hypothesis. Yeah, I, I think I, so, because I'm, I'm the interplay of the malt, the yeast, and the hops all together. Mm. I'm, I'm noticing all three quite, uh, quite distinctly. Um, and as you mentioned, I don't get any yeast character from, from Sierra Nevada Pale at all. No, that's... And, and the hop is, I mean, the malt base is a pretty neutral one, so it's really the, the hops that shine through on the pale. You do get the, the classic, uh, dollop of caramel. Yeah, that's true. Mm, mm, that's still, that, that ages very well. Yeah. That's still an excellent beer. Absolutely. As is Sierra Nevada Pale, by the way. And it still wins awards constantly. Yeah. Is that right? Oh, yeah. It wins awards all the time, and it's because it was so well-crafted. So this is – sometimes, you 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 know, a brewery will make a beer, and, it, and it's um, it's a fine beer, but it's not necessarily that the most distinctive beer in the world, and, mm-hmm. and it just sells a million. You know, I love Sam Adams Boston Lager. Mm-hmm. It is not necessarily the most sublime no. lager I've ever had, though. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really popular, and so it sells really well. Uh, I would say that this 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 stands out pretty. I, I would give this, you know, I think any brewery that made this now made a pale ale that tasted like this would be quite pleased with themselves. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, way to go, John. Way to go, John. Uh, shall we save the last one? Let's move on to our next. All right. Yeah. Topic, which is you. By the way, that's why I'm looking at you because. Well, let me just ask you to conclude that last bit, uh, John. So. Would you say, what's your answer to your question? What would be my answer? Okay. I think nowadays the answer is um, that uh, for the reasons of um, the deepening talent pool, the um, so there's, the talent is less scarce, um, that the business model, I believe, is changing, that there isn't um, this clear trajectory of riding one or two flagship beers to national success and and the millions and millions of dollars that follow, uh, and the um, uh, fact that brewing talent is probably more uh, prized for being versatile 
um, and brewing lots of different beers that we don't have the same kind of winner-take-all market as um, you know ten years ago when I wrote the blog post, or I guess it wasn't quite ten years ago, but but in the old the old brewing model. Um, so I think in the past it's you know like if John Harris was the brewer and the owner of Deschutes and was able to sort of ride his, then he would probably get outsized returns for <laughs> for his art, right? Yeah. Um, but nowadays, I think that it's not so much a winner-take-all market. But I do think that the there is a fairly unique skill set you need right now to really sort of, um, uh, well, I, don't, I don't know what the right term is, uh, steer a brewery or pilot a brewery or guide a brewery to sustain, sustain success. Mm-hmm. Um, and that takes... That takes a lot of talent, and I think that we might start seeing, given the competition that's growing and growing in craft beer, we might start seeing uh, brewmaster salaries being bid up. Yeah, I bet that's true. There are a few brewers in, in the world, like Vinny Salerzo, uh, Matt Brindelson, mm-hmm. um, some of these uh, guys, uh, uh, Jason Perkins at Allagash, mm-hmm. um, national, national, people with national status. I bet they wouldn't. I bet there are breweries who would love to hire Vinny Salerzo. I mean, he owns his own brewery, so you're not going to hire him. Well, that's this the thing. I was just about to say that I think the reason you don't see, like, these big-name moves for, you know, headline prices is that typically either they'll open their own brewery, which is sort of the obvious path if you're a brewer um, because you also want control over all that stuff, um, or you're offered an ownership stake in the existing brewery that you're at. So you really – but in a way, that's a way – of you, you're becoming your vested, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. becoming vested in the success of the company that you're creating, and so it is potentially an outsized return, right? So I guess I'm will be a two-handed economist on one hand, but more, but more to the point, I was just interested in discussing those con- con- economic concepts. Absolutely, I think it was a great idea. Uh, we've been wanting to do this for a while. We didn't think there was a whole pod in it, but I think there was. Look at this; we're already kind of late, and now we have this whole second half of the pod, so we're gonna have to scamper through it. That's all right. We can scamper. All right. So we were just going to do a little bit of a, it's the end of the year, uh, beginning of the year. We thought we'd do a look back, look forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought uh, it, there's always trends in both the business, like what happened business-wise and also what happened in the beer. Yep. There are actually perce- perceptive trends in the way the flavors uh, express themselves in the beer. Mm-hmm. So um, let's look at first at the uh, the business side. Yeah, which we've already been sort of just referencing just now. That's about right. A lot, a lot of the changes that are taking place. But yeah, it's interesting. I think um, we're at this inflection point mm-hmm. um, in the craft market where uh, we've we've talked about this a lot. Um, where the big, we, as Patrick just mentioned, the big the bigger breweries are starting to slow down, um, and we have also seen the pace of acquisitions slow down. Mm-hmm. Um, I think everyone who's got a lot of money is looking at it and thinking the opportunities to, to become a large, you know, to, to turn a brewery into a large national brand are, are starting to sunset. Mm-hmm. Uh, the overall growth of the craft market is diminishing. It's not stopping, but, um, still growing pretty robustly relative to other markets, but it not is nearly at the rate it was, but it seems like a lot of that growth is being driven by, um, by these mid tier breweries. Mm-hmm. And so it's not necessarily a lot of profit potential at a large scale. Right. Uh, so um, it seems like that's kind of just the the new normal is that that's where that is. Um, and one thing I've noticed, um, I'm interesting interested if I, I've noted down a few things that I've picked up this. I think I've observed this year. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You can comment on them or add anything else. Um, one thing is price stratification. Mm-hmm. You're at the grocery store, it used to be that craft beer was a certain price. Um, now you go and you see tiers forming. So you have uh, budget. 
IPA, like uh, sometimes Goose Island, you can find quite cheap, mm -hmm. um, kind of a standard price for craft beer and then premium prices. Mm -hmm. Some breweries have, have staked out premium pricing, like uh, Ballast Point, for example, $15 yeah. six packs. Yeah. Uh, that is surprising and interesting. Um, so that's it won't one last. Of, it's one of the consequences. Won't last. Okay. There's there's my first prediction for 2017. Wow. Nice. Yeah. Like, I, I, I don't think a place like Ballast Point that makes great beer, but but as great as lots of other breweries. So the premium pricing won't last. Uh, yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, because I think the budget pricing is here to stay. Yes, yeah. Well, that's driven. I mean, that's what happens. You, if you've got the scale, right. then, and especially if you're, if you're suffering on the market, then what you do is you really try to leverage that scale in terms of price. Yeah, I think that's right. But I think, so, so here's my analysis really quickly of, of some of the slowdowns in the big uh, the big regional breweries um, or the big national breweries now. Uh, I think that beer is even becoming more local mm -hmm. in the sense that there's so many breweries opening up that now, no matter where you are in the U.S., there's an alternative, a local alternative to Sierra Nevada Pale or to Boston Lager. That's right. Right? And so what used to be in, um, you know, Omaha, Nebraska, uh, and my apologies to all the, all the craft brewers there, but I'll just I'm just guessing that you know maybe ten years ago there weren't all, there wasn't a whole lot of local craft beer options in Omaha, Nebraska, and so you know Sierra Nevada Pale and Boston Lager were were big hits. Now you've got local alternatives. You can never show your face in Omaha again. Yeah, <laughs> you're dead to them. <laughs> uh, oh, you know, pick some state in the middle of the country. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> what I really should have done is picked a craft beer hotbed and get everyone to to prove me wrong by sending me their beer oh that's right <laughs> yeah there's actually some good breweries in nebraska of course there's good breweries everywhere it's good. that's my point there's yeah. good brewers everywhere and so i think a lot of this national expansion um wasn't happening in oregon right because we were already saturated but it was happening in all these other places that had relatively few local craft beer and because of the growth of craft beer it's actually uh counteracting the economies of scale and and uh, and definitely, I think, destroying the flagship beer business model. Yeah, I think that's right. And the next point I had mm -hmm. here is um, it's going to get riskier for new entries. And this is exactly the reason, because the market's tighter. There's 5,000 breweries. At every level, there's there's now competition. Mm -hmm. So markets, uh, local markets are saturated. National markets are saturated. Um, being yep. a, Hanging out your shingle and saying, I got to beer and making a lot of money those days, um, you're going to have to be a sharper businessman. The mar market's maturing. Yeah. And so I think, and actually, so this gets back to the John Harris point, I think that the emphasis is now less on beer and more on brewery. In other words, you're going to become known as a brewery more than for your specific beers. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, it'd be interesting to see how the marketing follows because I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, more breweries uh, sort of or would I say, uh, diminishing the emphasis on the actual beer and beer names. They love to have, you know, cutesy little names and, mm. and they love naming beers. But really focusing on the the brewery at first and then, you know, beer A, beer C, beer, beer D. You talk about the style, but, you know, Deschutes Pilsner, for example, rather than Deschutes, you know. Fancy Boat Pilsner. Fancy Boat Pilsner or, yeah, <laughs> or or Pile of Snow Lager or something like that. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, my, my beer of the year was uh, the Freem 
and their their beer their sour IPA, mm-hmm. uh, which Freem is classic. They just call it the style. It's the most unadorned thing, and and it it serves them well because it really accentuates the brand Freem. And in this case, it was really so. That's an excellent. They're an excellent, <laughs> but they're an excellent case in point. And I think they might be ahead of the curve here, which is their beers all have uh, the same big label that says Freem. Right. And then down in the bottom, they say what it is. So it's Freem IPA, or right. it's Freem Pilsner, or it's Freem, you know. Sour IPA, which is neither sour nor an IPA. <laughs> Why that's a really bad name, but but the point is that that uh, um, the emphasis is on the brewery or on the brand and not on the individual beer, and I think that's that's what you're going to start seeing, and people are going to start becoming more attached to breweries than to beers themselves. All right, you heard it here. Yeah, the here, here first. speaks. Okay. Uh, the last one I put down, and I, I think this is a, this is my view, and I'm I'm going to be interested to hear if you agree with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that brewing is still a good is- business to enter, mm-hmm. um, but uh, it's probably safer if you have a smaller business model um, if you're entering it like the brew pub or small small brewery. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, I think that the brew pub is still a pretty good business model all around. Yeah, it seems really the brew pub seems like such a winner to me. Well, with a caveat that. You're really entering the restaurant business first and brewing as kind of the thing that helps, you know, as a compliment. Uh, so if you don't get the restaurant right, you're probably not going to last long. That's true. But the brewery helps the restaurant so much because the Absolutely. profit on a pint of beer that you brew in-house is huge. Well, and it and it, and in, in it in and of itself brings in customers and yeah, sort of creates a, creates an attachment to a restaurant you wouldn't already get. That's why I think it's a really nice complementary relationship. And on the other, and the other thing is that you know pub food isn't the most difficult to pull off. Right. So it's not the hardest restaurant to sustain. Um, but you know restaurant business is tough. But uh, but even in Portland, there's a lot of space still left. I think for new brew pubs for neighborhood brew pubs. Um, as long as you understand that's what you're doing, it's a it's a local restaurant, and it can be sustainable and quite and quite uh, profitable. But it's not going to you know it's not going to buy you your island in the Bahamas. If you were starting a brewery, what 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 do you think is the the safest bet? If I was going to start a brewery, I think I would I would do a brew pub. Yeah, yeah, because I think a small packaging brewery is really tough right now. Yeah, it's hard to find. Uh, just you know, it's hard to find an outlet. I, I made this point when I did my talk in Eugene that you know, if I'm a farmer and I grow a tomato, I can take my tomato anywhere I want and sell it. Right? Yeah. I can go to any street corner and say, "Here's a tomato, buy it." You know, but in 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 beer, it's not that way because markets are heavily regulated. Right. And then so finding elbowing your way into that space, uh, finding tap handles, finding shelf space, um, is tough. So having your own retail outlet is. Uh, good. Uh, you know, I read something. Some, you know, there was a piece of news somewhere because I was read something about having tap rooms were uh, becoming really important to breweries. Yeah, tap rooms are a big, big deal, which is weird for Portlanders to think about because yeah, we always start with the tap room brewery model or the brew pub model. So it right. just seems like that's how everybody would do it. But it's it's not in the rest of the world. It's not always yeah. been so obvious. So I suppose that's another way if you can really sort of come up with a. Uh, a tap room that's that can be kind of successful on its own, then that's a way that you can find customers even without having, um, even uh, without having a real restaurant and and sort of be a packaging brewery, but also have this kind of built-in demand. Um, but that's tough. You know, you have to be the right location. You got to get the right buzz and all that. So, yeah, what I'll say is that um, I would feel more comfortable opening a brew pub than a packaging brewery. Yeah, me too. All right, look back, look forward with beer. Uh, people often ask, "What's the next IPA?" And the answer is. 
more IPA. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> We've really solidified as an, as an IPA market. I know there are many people who don't like IPAs, but it is just, that's the American thing. So but, I would not look for uh, any IPA to leave anytime soon. But an IPA can be uh, really high alcohol. It can be really low alcohol now. That's it can right. be really bitter. It can be really not bitter. It can be super, super citru- uh, fruity, citrusy, or it can be super floral. I mean, there's so many different ways you can do IPAs these days that that's one of the reasons why I think it's going to, it has legs because... We're yeah. just we're just reinventing it all the time. Yeah, and one of those things is the uh, the the New England IPA had it's really huge here last year, uh-huh. and I I've, I believe personally that it's a phantom style. I don't think there's actually any there there. I think it's it's just IPA. Yeah, um, it's a little cloudier um, in the way that it's brewed in in New England, but it tastes the same. Mm-hmm. Um, that was really big. I I think that will probably diminish as a fad mm-hmm. just because the flavor the flavor is not that particularly unique a big trend that i loved and i think will continue is uh the move towards sessionable uh yes strengths so between um four and a half and five and a half percent um and especially with that the rise of what people are now calling craft lager which cracks me <laughs> up it's a stupid name but it, i think it communicates what people yeah, are talking about yeah. yeah we've talked about nomenclature before yeah as long as it communicates what you're trying to as long as people understand what you're trying to communicate that's fine yeah i i wonder whether this is a big pendulum because we went, you know, I kept complaining that we were getting bigger and bigger and bigger in craft beer uh, to the point where I think we went to the holiday beer fest once and there was like nothing under 9% or something like that. Right. This is a winter beer, so I right. get it, but still. <laughs> and now we've really seemed to come full circle and now there's a whole lot of sessionable beers being being produced um, and I'm a huge fan. Um, I'm of a certain age. Yeah. Uh, and a 7% IPA is almost bound to put me to sleep which sometimes is good, or uh, but sometimes I'd like to have you know a four and a half five percent beer that is hoppy and nice and maybe even lagers. Actually, I'm really drinking. It's it's funny. I find myself drinking uh, lagers all the time now. Yeah, I like, think I think they're really. I, if I were to predict a continued trend that's going to continue to grow and grow and grow, uh, I would say um, uh, definite lager lager potential there. Okay. Uh, I would say that fruit IPAs and kettle sours are starting to enjoy some backlash hmm. and, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that continues. Um, just throwing fruit into an IPA is not necessarily <laughs> something useful. It can, it can work, but it's, it's been used too often as a gimmick. Give me an example. Cause I don't even, I don't think I've ever even encountered one. Well, I just saw, uh, and I haven't tasted this beer. It's not a criticism, but, um, for example, Full Sail has just released, I, P-A, so it's like this weird pun thing. It's I-Papaya, I-P-A, Papaya. Oh, okay. So it's Papaya I-P-A. Uh-huh. And I, I hate puns, too, so that that's call out to Brian <laughs> Yeager, who knows that I hate puns. He always throws seven puns at me when I say that. Uh, one example, you know, and I think that's just one of those things. It's like, we got to have a fruit IPA on there. Let's we, Nobody's done nobody's done papaya. Let's do a papaya IPA. That's true, and it, it reminds me that um, we were talking about Ballast Point. They have a sculpt, and then they have something. They have a grapefruit sculpt. Grapefruit sculpt. That's the one that started the whole thing. Oh, is it? No. Yeah. I mean, there were, there were they definitely existed before that, but that set the whole thing on. I don't think I ever had a grapefruit. No, I know I haven't had a grapefruit. I think kettle sour beers are going to continue to be popular, but um, kettle souring as a technique that's Uh that's touted and like, we got a kettle soured beer, had its heyday, and I think people are kind of backing off of that. Kettle souring is a nice technique, like dry hopping. It's just a good thing to do sometimes, Mm -hmm. um, but it's... uh, No longer a thing. I don't think it's anything. Okay. Uh, My other predictions, I would say... uh, the two trends that I'm going to point out, and you, I, you haven't thought about this, so you can 
while I talk, you can try to think if you have a okay. prediction. I predict that um, the subtle use of kettle souring to add acidity to beers will go on the rise, and it won't necessarily be even mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, the, my Freem beer of the year was a beer that used uh, dry hopping, mm-hmm. and it was offset with a lot of really tropical, light, uh, uh, vinous hop flavors were, were offset with acidity rather than bitterness okay. and it created this wonderful kind of sense of like the same way that fruit or wine works um yeah i got your satori award and i still haven't had it so yeah there's and something wrong there i think other you know there's a lot of ways in which acidity can can accent a beer like a um uh, like a saison for example perfect style uh, and you don't have to make a big deal out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, you just—it's you, a technique that allows you to acidify a beer to the level you want. And I think it's a technique brewers can use to—it's uh, another f- layer of flavor. So I expect that to increase. Mm-hmm. And I also uh, expect one thing that's starting to happen across America is the emergence of farm breweries, mm-hmm. and they're pretty cool. Um, I went to Agrarian here in in Oregon this year, and it was one of the first ones I'd been to. And then I started hearing about hearing about them all over the the country so define a farm brewery uh it's a it's a brewery uh where some or all of the ingredients are are produced on the farm okay and uh um in new york state for example passed a farm brewery law Uh so that it would i don't know it somehow facilitates the emergence of farm breweries in new york state which is super cool so i hope to see more more of that stuff it's a real throwback and it seems very natural to me and so does agrarian grow hops barley they do not grow barley but they do grow hops okay and they use a lot of other crops that they grow in their their beer so they'll they'll throw you know their whatever how cool cool would it be to have a farm that actually grows hops barley does malting on site does everything that's old school that's how it used to be it's a return to that so i I love it i love that too and i expect it's a slow trend like it's going to take a long people a long time to do that not you know a place like uh agrarian may have it in the in the plan i don't Uh know uh it's not something you can do quickly yeah and rogue (laughs) in oregon they don't they don't have a individual farm but they're doing everything now they are including malting including floor malting yep that's right so yeah it's a cool trend and in fact the more Rogue beers in the stores are now being. Uh, 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 the, how to, that was a really convoluted sentence. Let me try again. <laughs> the rogue <laughs> beers that I'm seeing more often in the stores now are ones that are 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 um, created entirely from their own produced ingredients. Yeah, yeah, it's a great thing. It, it's a way to bring terroir. It's it's a in a in a an environment where you want a unique beer that tastes unique. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't get more unique than making it yourself so that's cool okay you got anything so and i don't necessarily have a i don't know to call this prediction maybe a wish okay i'm gonna to try to start a trend here which is uh <laughs> the force of the beer volume podcast the very early you know the very the genesis of the craft beer movement in in uh, the u.s was based on english ales mm-hmm. and they have largely been forgotten what we call ipa now has very little to do with an english ales right and i am hoping that the next big trend is going to be a re- a revival of true English style ales, malt forward beers. Um, uh, there is one, we've talked about this on the pod before. There's one local place that's really doing some uh, kick ass English styles, which is called Ex Novo here in Portland. Um, I don't know how well those are selling, but I hope they're selling well because I want more. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, their mild was uh, one of my four 
finalists for the Satori Award. Yeah, so we should tell the story. And we met up, and I remember why we met up at Ex Novo in the middle of the heat of the summer. Uh, and they had a mild on tap, and I couldn't. I sort of had to read it twice before I really believed it. It was like a three point <laughs> five, a three point five percent English mild on a super hot day, and it comes, you know, it's brown malt forward beer. You wouldn't think, but it's just it's really low alcohol, and it was just absolutely delightful. It was wonderful, absolutely spectacular. So, uh, so yeah, and then they do a really yeah, great that, ESB. That ain't happening. But I'm with you. I'm with you. As a predi- as predictions go, I would bet a lot of money against that, but. <laughs> uh, I, I'd be willing to accept that for 2017, perhaps, but it's coming eventually. All right. All, All right. right. Now we're talking about the future. Let's go ahead and open this um, this uh, modern John Harris creation, which cool. is which is called the Orbiter IPA from Ecliptic Brewing. Uh, John is an astronomy buff, and so he has decided to uh, use astronomy nomenclature for his brewery and his beers. Ooh, I'd already can already do the smells popping out of the bottle before I even. This is kind of an interesting thing to take a brewer and look at his uh, his beers across time. We've never done anything like this. Wow. What I'm going to just say right it, now. You know, look at that. The color is, man, the color on all three of these beers is really similar. The, yep. the hue is just, that's interesting. We might be learning something about yeah. John Hayes. <laughs> what, right. what I was about to say is, and I think you're going to agree with this. Unfortunately, it's going to be hard to describe on on. Uh, on the pod that this smells like a John Harris beer. So, <laughs> so just tell me what you think. Yeah, I mean, it definitely, John has always liked more bitterness uh, than, well, I shouldn't say always like more bitterness. John likes bitterness, yep. and now that is becoming more distinctive uh, as we go into these breweries that, like, are scared to death of anything that's got a little bit of bitterness. Yeah, yeah, he's a real hophead, and he's kind of old school in that way. And this has got the hallmark 3C... Uh, nose, I think. Plus, let's see what they say. Actually, it's it's definitely got. Um, there's a there's there's an aroma. Good job, good call. <laughs> Plus, it's got Columbus and Simcoe. There you are. Uh, it's definitely got the kind of aroma that you get out of um, boiling hops. So it's got kind of a mm-hmm. uh, earthy. There's a way in which these hops, when they're boiled, give an earthy aroma that comes from the hops. It's not exactly like the the uh, the aromatics you get from the the essential oils. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's not. Uh, that's not a, a modern IPA in, in terms of like the last couple of years. IPA. That sucker is hot, is bitter. Yeah, that's a that's a modern IPA in terms of like the naughties, right? That's a naughties IPA. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's um, that's a three C cascade. Yeah, it's true. Forward that's, bitter, real classic IPA. That's like all of the all of the the IPAs as IPAs were coming a thing in a, in a, like that period around 2002 to 2005 yep uh yeah they were they were very much like this. which doesn't surprise me because he's said that that's he's a big fan of those beers so yeah and that's great i think we need to well it is depressing when everybody chases trends when everybody's got a papaya ipa mm-hmm. so you know find your <laughs> or voice. new england that's right <laughs> this find one by the way is delightfully bright in case you're you're, yeah. you're against murkiness well this it one is. No, it's totally. It's a great beer. It's clean, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's quite bitter. the uh, The flavor is keyed by uh, sharp American hops. Yep, yep. All right, are you ready for a lightning round? Lightning round. Wait, okay. Am I am I the? I'll, is I'll lightning read. gonna strike me here, and I've got to. Uh, we're, I'm gonna I'm gonna read you a sentence, and you're gonna answer it. Oh, okay. And I'll answer it too. All right. And it's kind of like a prediction. Don't then. know that I've had enough beer for this, but go ahead. It, oh yeah. This is good stuff. Okay. This is, for, this is the first lightning round on the on the Rihanna podcast. Yeah. You told me not to read this part, so I didn't. Yeah, I don't want you to think ahead. I just want... It's like 
word association. Okay. Okay. Uh, acquisitions. Um, uh, I don't know why I read it this way. <laughs> in, in in the in, uh, in 2017, uh, there will be uh, combined uh, three or fewer acquisitions by major breweries. Yes or no? No. You, there'll be more. Then. There'll be more. Because I think, because I think there's a, a couple of latecomers who are going to start. Like, right. I think, I, I think, uh, yeah. All right. I say, I say, yes. There will be three or okay. three or fewer. All right. Uh, most likely brewer to sell out or be a, be acquired: uh, Boston Brewing, New Belgium, or Brooklyn Brewing. Ooh, good one. Uh, New Belgium. Yeah, I mean, there may be none of them. I'm going to say Brooklyn. Okay. Uh, craft beer as a whole will grow. That's tough because, by the way, I think that, that other things might happen. Like we might see Boston bringing broken up into component parts. Sure. And, yeah. yeah. So, anyway, go ahead. Yeah. This is mostly for fun. Uh, craft beer as a whole will grow zero to five percent, or f- more than five percent in 2017. More than five percent. I think. Yeah, I think it's gonna be right around five percent. I'm not sure which way to go. I yeah. think it's slowing, slowing, slowing. I would say six to eight. Is what I'm gonna say. Okay. I'd say three to five. All right. Um, Trump will create a tariff <laughs> that will dampen uh, the imports of other beers. True. Ooh, interesting. I have no idea what Trump is ever going to do about anything. So there's, there's, but that could actually really affect beer. Oh yeah, I mean tariffs are something that actually there's a lot of executive power. You yeah. have a lot of executive leeway, and it's something that he's trumpeting. And I actually think that it's one thing that's con- that's been relatively consistent. And so I actually expect that we'll see a whole round of tariffs, yeah. which I don't support, by the way. But right. there you go. There you go. Uh, craft loggers will continue to grow as a trend. True. True. I agree. Uh, porters and stouts will make a comeback. False. <laughs> False. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> but other English beers, English ales, uh, English the- <laughs> like ESPs, no, those are definitely coming. I really want Miles. Porters and stouts to come back, but yeah, by God, do. they're not going to do it. I know you do. All right. Uh, imported classics, and I'm thinking here, like, you know, your Rodenbachs, your uh, DuPonts, your mm. Fullers. Okay. Um, will make a comeback. Well, that's inconsistent with what I agreed to with about the imports, but... Um, false. Although, I don't think it would... I don't think I don't think a tariff would influence those, because they're already premiumly priced. So yeah. it's not going to be a marginal increase in yeah. price. But I still say false. I think there's just increased... Uh, local competition for those styles. I think. That, I think. I, I don't know if for 2017, but I think it's coming. I think people are starting to rediscover these and and under when they when they taste these beers, they realize how different they are than the United States yeah. that we make them in the United States. So yeah. I, I think that's coming back, but um, I don't know if it's coming in 2017. So. Uh, trend most likely to die in 2017: <laughs> fruit IPAs, kettle soured beers, or mosaic hops. Oh, yeah, that last one was was your dream <laughs> so it's not that Kill one <laughs> it's not that one uh kettle sour beers yeah i bet fruit ipas are gonna be white here for a while bud yeah i bet you're right all right i'm with you kettle sour beers mm. sorry goza fans <laughs> uh the last one cannabis infused beers will become a thing ah okay uh yes but it's a it'll be a flashing fad yeah. yeah a tiny thing it's going to be it's going to be a no, there'll be a novelty of it for a while and right. then it's going to quickly disappear because i don't think it actually is going to add anything to the beer i agree and 
and in this case, it has to be non-psychoactive uh, cannabis. Right. So it's just a flavor thing, and it's, yeah. It, it's just kind of, yeah, it's sort of groovy. But All right. Well, I think that wraps up our uh, look back, look forward. And uh, How'd I do? What's my score? Did I, we have, did I win the prize? Will I get Carl Castle's? We'll evaluate, we'll evaluate you a year from now. Voice on we my answering machine? We will certainly remember this segment a year from now. If I know one thing. Uh, uh, yeah, so that's it. So um, uh, let's move on to the mailbag and Sherpa. That's okay, let's do it. Um, the mailbag, we have one from the mailbag. Uh, do we do Sherpa or mailbag first? You usually We usually do mailbag and then Sherpa. Okay, good. Usually lead the transition. I realize I'm I'm out to see here, but all right, we're on the mailbag. <laughs> David right. McCaleb, uh, McCaleb, McCaleb uh, sent an email and he talked about uh, reading up on kettle sours, mm-hmm. and he liked these beers, but in reading up on them, he learned that there's a flavor uh, 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 compound that called butyric acid mm-hmm. that is sometimes uh, found in kettle soured beers, mm-hmm. and this is kind of a vomit flavor Mm, and if if you know what it is you can identify it and once he learned about that he started uh noticing this in some of his kettle soured beers Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden he hated kettle soured beers so he's asking the question he asks like a three-part question we'll just throw this out there to what extent have your impressions of specific beers changed due to things you have read rather than what you taste Mm -hmm. Uh, and have has that knowledge ruined any beers as it did for him? <laughs> uh-huh. um, and how do you try to maintain objectivity when you see negative things about a particular beer or style? Mm-hmm. Um, and he goes back to his butyric acid example. So that's the question. Do you want to answer that one first? Um, I, you have introduced me to lots of flavors that I might not have otherwise noticed. Um, but I don't think any of them are things that I suddenly became hyper aware of and and influence my enjoyment. In fact, mostly it just enhances my enjoyment because I now feel like I can identify more of the flavors that I'm experiencing and that's kind of nice and fun and I can think about the beer intellectually, not just emotionally. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I don't think that there's anything... Um, I mean, one thing I suppose is, is uh, like diacetyl. Um, I wasn't really aware of diacetyl until you mentioned it, but I don't actually find it objectionable. Mm. Um, and then the other flavor I can sort of think about, but it wasn't because anyone told me, it was just uh, when um, sriracha's were a big thing. We've, we've talked about this, <laughs> the hops, which people really love because they're super lemony. Well, for me, I didn't get lemon at all. I got just an overwhelming dill and i hate mm, i just really dill. despise <laughs> i just really despise any beer made with sriracha ace. um so that's it but no i don't think there's anything that what about you i you know i think this is biting the apple of knowledge once you start learning about beer um it's hard uh, there's there's really cool things about it and really bad things about it mm-hmm. once you know what diacetyl is when you taste a beer all you and it's got diacetyl you can't help but taste the diacetyl right and so it's it's interesting to talk to people who are tasting beer, especially like chefs or wine fans who have sophisticated palates, mm-hmm. but are not necessarily familiar with the compounds right. that uh, beer has typically. Mm-hmm. And they'll they'll describe flavors that exist in the beer, but which are off the map for mm-hmm. you because you're busy like saying that's oh, got a touch of diacetyl, it's, you know, it's got um, mosaic hops, it's got you're going through, you're ticking off all the 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 elements that you taste. So. 
it's just what it is. Um, once you once you taste vomit in a beer, and then you 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 see it later, it's really hard to, to ignore. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'll say that you know, getting back to the first part of the question, which is, um, have my impressions of beers changed due to things you've read or been told? Um, I would say absolutely, and usually in a good way. It's just that I might not be able to sort of recognize or put my finger on particular flavors or or sources of flavors and knowing that to me usually enhances my enjoyment of the beer and being able to identify distinct flavors that I might not have noticed otherwise. So I like, I like to drink beer with people who have really like drinking beer with brewers is amazing Mm -hmm. because they, they'll point out stuff that you didn't realize. And then once you've been told you, you can go back. Oh yeah, I see exactly what you mean. Right. So I think it's great. All right. Well, there you go. Yeah. Uh, Oh yeah, the other part is objectivity about a style. That's always hard. I always have you always have preconceived notions when you go into something. Yeah. Styles you like and styles you don't. I love being surprised though. I think I think it, it is important to understand style stuff, uh, just because um, once you know about styles, you understand national tradition, the way the beer is brewed, um, and then the flavor compounds that are normally uh, created in that that traditional brewing process. Mm-hmm. So I think it's valuable to know that stuff, but it can be a little bit of a you know it can shackle you too. So it's just what it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, welcome, welcome to knowledge. It's yeah. a <laughs> sword. All right. Well. Uh, oh, Sherpa. You got nothing, do <laughs> <I> you? Got, <laughs> well, I brought three beers. Uh, Mirror Pond's my Sherpa. <laughs> that was <laughs> as audibles go. That was a uh, weak. Uh, I always la- rely on you because I never drink anything that's not either uh, super local, so nobody can get it anywhere else, or um, just like well known. Well, should we scrap Sherpa? Everybody, should we scrap Sherpa? That's a question for the oh, for the audience. You're saying you don't have a Sherpa. Well, I have a Sherpa, but it's I've hyper local. No, well, go for it. What is it? <laughs> it's a brewery in McMinnville called Grain Station, which okay. was founded by Mark Vickery, who right. was the the brewer. It kind of goes back. It works well with our earlier theme. It was the longtime brewer at Golden Valley, mm-hmm. but was not an owner, right. and wanted, always wanted to have his own place. And he opened up uh, um, Grain Station, mm-hmm. which is literally a stone's throw away from golden valley you can stand <laughs> on the roof of golden valley and plunk a rock at at uh, grain station uh-huh. really cool pub so if you're in uh the mighty town, mac yeah if you're in the mighty mac stop in it's a really groovy place to hang out and right. they have a bunch of cool beers and they made a czech pilsner which of course i really enjoyed so uh, there you go i would say it's not actually a czech pilsner it is a german pilsner made with sauce hops okay um but it's really well done um the the character is much more akin to a german pilsner but mm-hmm. well done um crystal clear i took a photo and posted on instagram it's like man i like me a perfectly bright beer sometimes i know we're all we're in the age of haze but man i admire a, a, a brewery that can put out a perfectly especially a small brewery like that a perfectly clear beer mm-hmm. wonderful looking beer yeah. anyway um if you're in mcminnville and most of you won't be but um there you go and you can you can uh, weigh in whether or not we should continue the Sherpa because it's true we tend to drink at home and we recognize that most of you don't get to Oregon very often yeah but you get beer shipped to you from all over but I'm, I'm sticking with I'm, most people will have access to Mirror Pond so right. if you haven't had a Mirror Pond or if you haven't had one recently go check it out because it's really good it's true I can endorse that having just had it but I still and that'll connect you to the pod you'll have John Harris's beer in your hand alright you're still in the doghouse that was terrible <laughs> Well, you know, the problem is I go to the store and I start thinking about this. Like, oh, man, I need to try something new so that I can have something that's sure. I'm like, what if it's not great? Then, yeah. 
Sorry, yeah. actually. I know. It's tough. It's tough work. Because that's why we get paid the big bucks, so that you can go out there and yeah. drink all this beer. Well, I, I guess that's, you know, if, if, you wanna, if, you're, if you want your beer to be a Sherpa beer, then you, what you need to do is send it to us so we can try it. That is excellent advice, which I strongly endorse. And uh, as I say, if, you're, if you send us beer, uh, we'll, we'll definitely uh, uh, review it on the pod. So I, if you send, I say that about the blog. If people send me beer, I'll always review them for the blog. But um, if you're a citizen, if you're a brewery, no, no, no guarantees. And with that, thank you for listening to the podcast. And if you do want to send us a beer, the way to get in touch and find out where to send it is at the underscore beer acts at yahoo.com. Oh, we haven't we haven't done the product. Uh, wait a minute, weren't we supposed to do one in the middle? <sighs> All right, we're gonna have to splice it in. When when if you're at the end of this pod, you'll have yeah. you'll <laughs> you'll have this funny splice. That's and now you'll know what it is because That's we right. forgot to do our mid mid pod segment. We did. Um, but don't let me forget to tell you that right now the pod is brought to you by Guinness. Regardless of the Guinness beer you choose, please drink responsibly. And by All About Beer magazine. Since 1979, award-winning beer and brewery news, reviews, and insight, in print and online. Subscribe today. Allaboutbeer.com slash subscribe. Okay, so Jeff blogs at Beervana and All About Beer. He tweets at at Beervana. But you can uh, email us at the underscore beer acts at yahoo.com. Yahoo still exists? That, and that email still works? It, That's I, a dinosaur, man. I got emails going back 20 years. I can't get off now. I'm stuck. <laughs> it's platform, it's pla- it's platform uh, shackles. And I economics, can't. we have a term for that. It's called What's, switching costs. Yeah, the switching costs are too giant. <laughs> uh, there's a Beervana blog Facebook page is another great way uh, to get in touch. And you are Patrick, uh, and you uh, blog at Beeronomics sometimes, and you tweet sometimes at, at Beeronomics. That's right. So look for Patrick there. And um, I have emails, but they're not Yahoo. They're Gmail, which is modern. And- I also have a Gmail, but you can't have that one. <laughs> All I right. Try to keep the riffraff like you away from that one. Uh, th- thanks for listening. Um, since, oh man, these, these three <laughs> almost are- look identical. Well, yeah, one's super mur- murky. The murky one. That. But, uh, Actually, that's hilarious. Look at that. The mirror pond and the and the IPA are almost identical. They are almost identical. It's very difficult. Okay, to so let's find them. out which one I have by smell. Yeah, the smell will reveal. Oh, I have the mirror pond. Do you? Oh, no. Hold on. I don't think you do. No, I don't. No, I don't. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I have the IPA. All right. So uh, to John Harris. To John Harris. All right. Cheers. Our, our, uh, our local superstar. Yeah. Cheers. cheers.